Section 30 of the Critique of Dogmatic Theology, An Investigation of the Christian Teaching by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Leo Wiener. Addendum. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Laurie Arsenault. Just as this volume was going through the press, there appeared in England a second edition of the Russian original. It comes in time to be utilized for the correction of a number of inaccuracies and for the insertion of the following conclusion, which is absent in the first edition. What has to be omitted is a number of unessential quotations from Makari's Theology. Translator's Note with this word, I no longer can connect any other conception than that of a few hirsute men, extremely self-confident, deluded, and ignorant, in silk and velvet, with diamond panagias called bishops and metropolitans, and thousands of other hirsute men, who are in a state of the grossest, most servile servility to those dozens of men who, under the guise of performing certain sacraments, are busy cheating and fleecing the people. How can I believe in this church, which to man's profoundest questions about his soul answers with petty deceptions and insipidities, and affirms that no one must dare to answer these questions in any other way, and that in everything which is most precious in my life I should not be guided by anything but what it points out to me? I may choose the color of my pantaloons, I may choose my wife according to my liking, but in everything else, precisely that in which I feel myself to be a man, I must be guided by them, those idle, cheating, and ignorant people. In my life, in the holiness of my soul, I have for a guide and pastor the parish priest, a dull, illiterate lad who has been let out of the seminary, or a hard-drinking old man whose only care it is to take in as many eggs and kopecks as possible. They command the deacon to yell half the time, many years for the orthodox godly harlot Catherine too, or for the most godly Peter, the robber, the murderer, who blasphemed over the gospel, and I am compelled to pray for them. They commend me to curse, burn, and hang my brothers, and I must cry after them, anathema, these people command me to regard my brothers as cursed and have to cry anathema. They command me to drink wine out of a spoon and swear that it is not wine but the body and blood, and I must do so. But this is terrible. It would be terrible if it were possible, but in reality it is not so, not because they have weakened in their demands, they still shout anathema, or many years, if they are commanded to do so, but because in reality no one listens to them. We the experienced and cultured people, I recall my thirty years outside the church, do not even despise them. We simply pay no attention to them and do not even have the curiosity to know what they are doing, writing, and saying. A pope has come, very well, give him half a rouble. A church has been built for vanity's sake, 
Very well. Dedicate it. Send for a shaggy-maned bishop and give a hundred rubles. The masses pay still less attention to them. During butter week we must eat pancakes, and during passion week we must prepare ourselves for communion, and if there arises a spiritual question for one of our kind, we go to clever, learned thinkers, to their books, or to the writings of the saints, but not to the popes. And the people from the masses turn dissenters, stundists, milkers, the moment the religious sentiment is awakened in them. Thus the popes have for a long time been serving only themselves, and the weakest-minded and rascals and women. It is to be assumed that very soon they will be instructing themselves only. That is so, but what does this mean, that there still are wise men who share this delusion? What does the church mean, which has led them into such impassable forests of stupidity? The church, according to the definition of the hierarchs, is an assembly of the believers, of infallible and holy priests. It is not proper for a layman, says the sixty-fourth rule of the ecumenical council, to utter words or to teach and take upon himself the teacher's dignity, but to obey the orders established by God, to open his ear to those who have received the grace of the teacher's words, and by them to be instructed in the divine word. For in the one church God created various orders according to the words of the apostles, 1 Corinthian 12, 27, 28 which Gregory the Divine explains, showing clearly the orders contained in them, when he says, This order, O brothers, let us respect and guard. Let one be the ear, and the other the mouth, one the hand, and the other something else. Let one teach, and the other be taught. And after a few words he proceeds, Let him who learns be in obedience, and him who gives, give with pleasure, and him who serves, serve with zeal. Let us not all be the tongue, though this be nearest to all, nor all the apostles, nor all prophets, nor all commentators. And after a few words he says again, Wherefore hast thou made thyself a shepherd, being a sheep? Wherefore dost thou make thyself a head, being a foot? Wherefore dost thou pretend to lead the armies, since thou art placed in the rank of the soldiers? And in another place he enjoins wisdom. Be not rash with thy mouth, Ecclesiasticus, verse 2. Being poor, labor not to be rich, Proverbs 23, 4. Try not to be wiser than wise, and if one be found guilty violating the present rule, let him be removed from the communion with the church for the period of forty days. After this it is obvious in what sense the word church is to be taken, when reference is made to its infallibility in matters of teaching. Infallible, without doubt, is the whole church of Christ in general which consists of pastors and the flock. But since the class of pastors are more particularly enjoined to watch, preach,
preach and interpret to people the divine revelation, since the flock is compelled in this holy manner unflinchingly to follow the voice of their God-given instructors, Ephesians 4, 11-15, Acts 2, 28, Hebrews 4, 13-17. It is evident that in disclosing the teaching of the infallibility of the church, it is necessary above all to have in view the teaching church, which, however, is inseparably connected with the instructed church. From this it is clear what the church means by church. It means nothing but the exclusive right for it to teach. In explanation of this right, it says that it is infallible. And it is infallible, it says, because it derives its teaching from the source of truth, from Christ. But the moment there are two teachings which equally deduce their teachings from Christ, this foundation, the proofs, and everything reared upon it fall to pieces, and nothing is left but incitements for such an absurd teaching. The impelling causes are as obvious now, at the sight of the palaces and carriages of the bishops, as they were in the sixth century, if we look at the luxury of the patriarchs, and as they were in the first apostolic times, if we take into consideration the desire of each teacher to confirm the truth of his teaching. The Church affirms that its teaching is based on the divine teaching. Proofs are incorrectly adduced in this case from the Acts of the Epistles, because the Apostles were the first people who put forth the principle of the Church, the truth of which has to be proved, and so their doctrine can as little as the latter doctrine assert that it is based on Christ's teaching. No matter how near in time they may be to Christ, they are, according to the church doctrine, men, while he is God. Everything which he said is true. Everything which they said is subject to proof and rejection. The church felt this, and so hastened to put on the apostolic teaching the seal of the infallibility of the Holy Ghost. But if we brush aside this snare and take up Christ's teaching itself, we cannot help but be struck by that bold impudence with which the teachers of the church wish to base their doctrine on the teaching of Jesus Christ, who denied all that which they want to affirm. The word ecclesia, which has no other meaning than that of assembly, is used but twice in the Gospels, and that too only in Matthew. On thee, on my faithful disciple, as on a rock, I shall establish my union of men, and the other time in this sense, that if thy brother will not hear thee, tell it in an assembly of men, because what ye shall loose here, meaning your anger, your annoyance, will be loosed in heaven, that is, in God. Now, what have the priests made of it? Having appeared upon earth in order to accomplish the great work of our redemption, the Savior at first claimed only for himself the right to instruct people in the true faith which he had received from the Father. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, Luke 4, 18, 19. 
and passing through the cities and villages preaching the gospel he added to this end was i born and for this cause came into the world john eighteen thirty seven for therefore am i sent luke four forty three and joining at the same time the people and the disciples but be ye not called rabbi for one is your master even christ matthew twenty three one eight ten then he transferred his divine right of the teachership to his disciples to the twelve and the seventy whom he purposely chose for this great ministration from the midst of his hearers luke six thirteen refer to ten one and the following at first he transferred it only temporary during the days of his earthly existence when he sent them to preach the gospel of the kingdom only to the lost sheep of the house of israel matthew ten five through sixteen and elsewhere and later for all time after his resurrection when having himself accomplished all his work upon the earth and going up to heaven he said to them as my father hath sent me even so i send you john two twenty one go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy ghost matthew twenty eight nineteen and on the other hand he very clearly and with terrible threats enjoined all men and future christians to receive the teaching of the apostles and to obey them he that heareth you heareth me and he that despiseth you despiseth me and he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me luke ten sixteen refer to matthew ten fourteen eighteen fifteen nineteen mark sixteen sixteen finally at the same time that the lord transferred his divine right of the teachership to the apostles he expressed the wish that from the apostles this right might pass directly to their successors and from the latter passing from generation to generation might be preserved in the world to its very end for he said to his disciples and he said unto them go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever i have commanded you and lo i am with you always even unto the end of the world mark sixteen fifteen matthew twenty eight eighteen twenty Quote, but these disciples evidently could not live to the end of the world and if they were able to preach the gospel to all the nations which were contemporaneous with them they certainly could not preach it to the nations of the subsequent times consequently in the person of his apostles the saviour sent out all their future successors to the work of the universal preaching and also encouraged them with his presence but the positive doctrine of one of the apostles themselves who said that christ himself gave his church not only apostles prophets evangelists but also pastors and teachers ephesians four eleven unquote. even if we accept 
that incomprehensible, obviously interpolated passage about baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, there is not a word to point to the Church. On the contrary, there is a direct indication that no one should call himself a teacher. What can more clearly be said against the Church according to the ideas of the Church? And this very place, as though in ridicule of its exact meaning, they quote, and against the teachership, not two or three passages speak against the teachers, but the whole meaning of the gospel. We have taught in thy name, go into eternal fire, ye who are working inequity. All the speeches to the Pharisees and concerning the external worship, that the blind should not lead the blind, for they would fall down together. But mainly the whole meaning of Jesus' teaching in John and in the other Gospels. He comes to announce the good to those who are lowly in spirit, and he calls them blessed. He repeats several times that his teaching is accessible and intelligible to babes and to the imprudent in contradistinction to the wise and the learned. He chooses the foolish, the imprudent, the downtrodden, and they understand him. He says that he came not to teach but to fulfill, and he fulfills with his whole life. He repeats again and again that he who will fulfill will find out whether it is from God, and that blessed is he who fulfills and not he who teaches, that he who fulfills is great and not he who teaches. He is angry only with those who teach. He says, Do not judge others. He says that he alone opened the door for the sheep, and that he knows the sheep, and the sheep know him. And there the uncalled pastors, the wolves in sheep's clothing, came in the garments of harlots, stood up before him and said, They, the doers of iniquity, that not he, but they, were the door for the sheep. The impelling causes are comprehensible, especially during the first times, when the first Paul spoke of the church, of the infallibility. It is comprehensible how an excitable man, who is carried away by the true faith, may have failed fully to understand the spirit of the teacher, and so departed from his teaching. It is comprehensible for that nearest time, as well as later, under the pressure on Constantine's power, how they could have been carried away by the desire as quickly as possible to establish their external faith. We can understand all the wars which were waged in the name of this departure from the spirit of the teaching, but the time has come for separating the sheep from the goats, for they have already separated themselves in such a way that the true teaching can no longer be met within the churches. And it is clear that the teachership of the church, though it arose from a small departure, is now the worst enemy of Christianity, and that its pastors serve what they please, except the teaching of Jesus, because they reject it. The doctrine about the teaching church is now a doctrine which is purely inimical to Christianity. Having departed from the spirit of the teaching, it has corrupted it to such an extent 
that it has reached a point where it rejects it with the whole life. Instead of humility, there is grandeur. Instead of poverty, luxury. Instead of not judging our neighbors, the most cruel condemnation of all. Instead of forgiving offenses, hatred and wars. Instead of endurance of evil, punishments. And all men deny one another, but not themselves. The name of Christ's kingdom cannot save it, but in its definition there is, in addition to the definition as a church of pastors, also another obscure definition as a church of the pastured who must obey. What is understood by the first is clear, but what is to be understood by the second is completely obscure. An assembly of believers? If believers have come together, believing in one and the same thing, they constitute an assembly of believers. There is such an assembly of believers in Wagner's music, an assembly of believers in the social theory. To them, the word church is not applicable with the concept of infallibility, which is attached to it, and that is all there is to it. It is an assembly of believers and nothing else, and it is impossible to see the limits of this church because faith is not a carnal matter. The religion of our popes can indeed be felt in the vestments, the panagias, and all the remaining nonsense, but the faith of the believers, that one thing which is the life and the light in men, cannot be felt and it cannot be said where it is and how much there is of it. Consequently, this is said only for the purpose that the pastors may have someone to herd, and there is no other meaning to it. The church, all this word, is the name of a deception by means of which one set of men wants to rule another. There is no other church, and there can be none. Only in this deception, which is based on the true teaching and is carried on by all the churches, have there appeared all those monstrous dogmas which distort and conceal the whole teaching of the church, such as the divinity of Jesus and of the Holy Ghost and the Trinity and the Virgin Mary and all the savage customs called sacraments. It is evident that they have no sense and are of no use to anyone except the dogma of the sacrament of orders, which is needed for the purpose of enabling men to collect eggs. But who would have preserved the Holy Scripture? What would people have believed in, and who would have taught if there had not been the Church? Not those have preserved the Holy Scripture who have disputed, but those who have believed and done. The Holy Scripture is a tradition of days and life. The only teaching that is needed is the one which teaches through life, so that their light may shine before men. People have always believed in works only. If ye believe not me, believe my works. Neither I nor anyone else is called to judge others and the past. I see that works alone are capable of adoption and teach me and the people, and only the doctrine and the controversies corrupt the people and deprive them of faith. Indeed, 
all these theological controversies were carried on in reference to matters which are of no use to any one, which are not the subject of faith. It has come to such a pass that as a subject of faith there presents itself the question as to the infallibility of the popes and of Mary, who bore a child in a strange manner, and so forth. Life has never been a subject of faith. It could not be the subject of a controversy, for how will you show faith while I show works? Quote, but where is the true church of the true believers? How can we find out who is in the right and who is not? Will those ask who do not comprehend the teaching of Jesus? Where is the church? That is, where are its limits? If you are in the church, you cannot see its limits. But if you are a believer, you will say, how can I be saved? What do I care about judging others? Unquote. To him who has comprehended the teaching of Jesus, the teaching consists in this, that to me, to my light, the power is given to go to the light. To me, my life is given. Outside of it and beyond it, there is nothing but the source of all life, God. The whole teaching of humility, the renunciation of wealth, the love of my neighbor, has only this meaning, that I can make this life infinite in itself. Every relation of mine to another life is only an exaltation of my own, a communion and oneness with it in peace and in God. Through myself only can I comprehend the truth and my works are the consequences of the exaltation of my life. I can express this truth in myself. What question can there be for me who understand life thus? I cannot understand it otherwise. As to what others think, how they live. As I love them, I cannot help but wish to communicate my happiness to them. But the one tool which is given me is the consciousness of my life and its works. I cannot wish, think, believe for another. I exalt my life, and this alone can exalt the life of another. And is not another myself? So if I exalt myself, I exalt all. I am in them, and they in me. The whole teaching of Jesus consists only in what the common people repeat with simple words, to save one's soul, but only one's own, because it is everything. Suffer, endure evil, do not judge. All this tells the same. At every contact with the affairs of the world, Jesus teaches us by his example of complete indifference, if not contempt, how we must bear ourselves toward worldly matters, toward raiment, toward tribute for the church and for Caesar, toward litigations about inheritance, toward the punishment of the sinning woman, toward the spilling of the costly ointment. Everything which is not thy soul is not thy concern. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness in your soul, and everything will be well. Indeed, my soul is given into my power, even as it is given to another. 
souls other than mine I not only cannot rule over, but am not even able to comprehend. How, then, can I mend and teach them? And how can I waste my strength on what is not in my power, and overlook that which is in my power? Outside the teaching, Jesus showed by his life the falseness of the structure of this world, in which all pretend to be busy with the good of others, whereas their aim is nothing but a pampering of their lust, a love of darkness. Look at any evil whatsoever, and you will see that every man gives out as his pretext the good of his neighbor. When you see that a man is taking hold of another and insulting him, saying that he is doing so for the good of humanity, try to find out what it is that the man wants, and you will see that he is doing it for his own sake. Failing to comprehend all this, the false faith has enticed people into the vicious desire to teach others, and has given birth to the church with all its horrors and monstrosities. What will happen if there shall be no church? There will be what now is, what Jesus has said. He spoke not because he wanted to, but because it is so. He said, Do good deeds that men, seeing them, may glorify God. And it is only this one teaching which will be, and has been ever since the world has existed. In works there is no diversity, but if in the confession, in the comprehension, in the external worship, there is and shall be any diversity of opinion, it does not touch the faith and the works and is in nobody's way. The church wanted to unite these confessions and external worships, and itself broke up in innumerable sects, one denying the other, and has thus shown that neither the confession nor the worship is a matter of faith. The business of faith is only the life in the faith. Life alone is higher than anything and cannot be subjected to anything but God, who is cognized through life alone. The End End of Section 30 Recording by Laurie Arsenault End of the Critique of Dogmatic Theology An Investigation of the Christian Teaching by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Leo Wiener